This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as a senior pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read verses uh, 3 through 11. This is God's Word. It's, it's inspired. It's true. It's inerrant. It's sufficient. And we need to hear it this morning. So I'm going to pray that the Lord would open His Word up to us and we would see wonderful things this morning. Father, bless this moment that we have in your word. We pray for your presence. We pray for the gift of illumination throughout this auditorium, that our faith may be built, that we might see Christ for who he truly is. We ask that in his name, our Savior's name. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. It's an important text, really in all the New Testament, about Jesus. There's so much here about the risen Christ. It calls each of us to come to Christ for salvation. It calls us to bow before Him and confess that He is Lord. And my prayer is that we will all do that today. Scripture is, is clear. We cannot rescue ourselves from our sins and we need rescued. 
And it's just as clear that, like the signs say on 411, heading south, Jesus saves. In John 14, Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To bring us to God, to save us, God the Son became a man. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He's now seated at the Father's right hand above all earthly powers. He pours out the Spirit on the church. He intercedes for His people as their great high priest. He's coming again to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. This is the work of Christ for our salvation. On Easter Sunday, we we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Jesus couldn't be a Savior if He had remained in the grave. Jesus' resurrection saves, but not apart from the cross. These are the two most important redemptive events that Christ accomplished. The very heart of His saving work. And Philippians 2 is a glorious text. It captures, it reveals to us the person and work of Christ like few other texts. It explains why it's so central. This text was so central to this whole letter that we've been studying since last September as a church. The main point Paul is making, which is the reason I read verses 3 and 4, is that Christ did not insist on his rights. So unusual, isn't it, in our world? The church at Philippi was threatened by a lack of humility. A whole church motivated by selfish ambition. Some were were tempted to look out for themselves, regardless of the harm it did to others or even to the whole church. Christ, the one who is truly the most exalted. He is the greatest of all time. But he is a servant. You may remember in 2009 when Michael Jordan was inducted to the Basketball Hall of Fame. He gave a speech and so did David Robinson. Jordan is said to be the GOAT, the greatest basketball player of all time. It's hard for me to admit it because I'm a Larry Bird fan, but I think he is. As great as Jordan was, his Hall of Fame speech was not great. It was fittingly 23 minutes long because his number was 23. In his speech, he pointed out the high school coach who cut him, he said. He actually didn't cut him. He just didn't put him on the varsity when he was a sophomore in high school. Jordan pointed out the guy who made the team ahead of him. He talked about the players who mistreated him and didn't believe in him. He talked about the shot he made over Brian Russell in his last championship. He talked about how he won those championships and players win championships and not the front office. He threw the Bulls personnel, front office personnel under the bus. He even mentioned how he felt sorry for his kids because they had to live in his shadow. 
Pretty much everyone said it was a proud and petty speech that showed how Jordan, who was as off-the-charts competitive as he was talented, used every slight, every grudge in his whole life to prove he could dominate in basketball and that he was the GOAT, the best. David Robinson, on the other hand, his speech was very different. It was short. It was only seven minutes long. He thanked everyone who made him better. He thanked his family, thanked his friends. He thanked the Spurs, the San Antonio Spurs he played for. He thanked the Naval Academy where he went. He spoke directly, very tenderly to his children, told them how gifted they were and how much he loved them. He thanked his wife for making him to be a better man. He thanked his parents. He thanked his teammates. He thanked those who had come before him on his team and in the whole league. And he finished by talking about the story of the ten lepers from Luke's gospel. And he said he wanted to be the one man who went back to say thank you. He thanked God for being in his life. And he said his prayer was that everyone in attendance would come to know God and experience Him in their own lives. That's our prayer for everyone in here today. David Robinson showed what it means to be truly great. You can watch these speeches online. It'd be hard to find a better example side by side of pride and humility. The truth is that all of us will be humble before Christ. Usually it happens in this life. But if not in this life, then always after death. Even Michael Jordan can count on this. Every knee will bow before Jesus Christ. Some will bow in this life and confess that Christ Jesus is Lord. They will be saved. Others will bow when it's too late. The question is not whether or not you will bow. The question is when you will bow. And that's what this message is about today. So let's turn our attention to this text. It's central to Paul's letter to the Philippians. As I said, it's a poem, apparently, or a song. And they're they're woven together beautifully. It's a beautiful poem, a hymn. And it gives a complete picture of the person of Christ. They think it was an early Christian hymn that missionaries would use to sing when they would go into new areas. And Paul is using it for his purposes. He is quoting it. He wants to encourage this church to be a community that has the mind of Christ so they'll serve others and not themselves. It has two parts. We'll look at two parts. First of all, Jesus' self-humbling and then God the Father's exaltation of Jesus. Jesus self-humbling. Verses 5 and 6. Look look with me. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus was in the form of God. He was equal with God, but he didn't grasp Equality with God. Notice that the action of this song or this poem or this hymn moves from 
God the Son's existence and equality with God before He became a man to His lowly existence after He became a man and was condemned and executed as a criminal. Then then the action continues as God exalts Jesus in His existence as a man to the honor and glory that He shared with God the Father prior to taking the nature of man. God the Son took a human nature. Jesus is God the Son, you may have heard this word before, incarnate. God the Son in human form. God the Son embodied with a human nature. This is what incarnate means. Verse 6, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Paul is pointing to his existence before he was born in the manger to the Virgin Mary. He was in the form of God. He pre-existed. He was God the Son before he was born the man, Christ Jesus. Take a deep breath. Before he was born, he occupied the highest position. He was the greatest of all time. He is the greatest of all time. By form here, Paul means the the form which truly and fully expresses who he is. He's using this word to say Jesus truly and fully. The man Jesus Christ expresses who God is. The essence of who God is is seen in Christ. Verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form, again the word form, of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Jesus truly and fully is a servant. He became a servant. As surely and as truly as previously he had been God. So let's pause for a minute. Whatever you thought about when you thought of Jesus Christ when you came to this meeting, I think we can all agree That the Apostle Paul, at least, thought Jesus was an amazing person. He thought he was an awesome person. And I hope we will all leave today at least considering the person of Jesus Christ. He's worth your time. Consider him. I hope you'll you'll bow before him today and confess him as Lord. but, But consider him. Paul uses the word form to affirm he's fully God, he's fully man. He's he's describing what he appears like to someone who observes him. Jesus presents a form that truly and fully expresses who God is. And he presents a form that shows he is a man and he is a servant. To an angel, God has a form. He has an image. He has a likeness. He has a glory. He makes himself accessible in his form. 
And what Paul and others in the New Testament do is insist that this form, this image, this glory belong to Christ Jesus in exactly the same way and to the same degree as they do to God the Father. He is God the Son. And He has the image and the glory and the likeness and the form to go along with it. The form truly and fully expresses who God is. His divine nature. The one who emptied Himself is the one who had glory with God the Father before the world began. Jesus said in John 17, And now, Father, He was praying the great high priestly prayer, And now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. That's who Paul is talking about. The gospel, the good news is summed up by Paul in 2 Corinthians. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. He's given us the details of what that means in Philippians 2. That's that's what we're looking at. Christ, though he was rich, for your sake became poor. This is what he means. Here is how. He was rich beyond all splendor, but he became poor. He took the form, not just of a man, but of a servant. God is love, and his impulse is to serve. God is not self-centered. God is not self-absorbed. It is his very form to give up his rights for others. Before he was a servant, Jesus existed in the form of God. He was equal with God. And this one who had glory with the Father before the world began possessed all the majesty of God. He performed all the works of God. He enjoyed all the privileges of God. He was loved by God the Father. He was worshipped by the angels. He was invincible. He didn't experience pain. He didn't experience frustration or embarrassment. He existed in perfect contentment. Total supremacy. Completely satisfied. Perfectly blessed. He didn't get all this with effort. It was just the way things were. They'd always been this way. No reason they should change. But they did change. So consider for just a minute, why? Why did they change? Verse 6. Though he was in the form of God... He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Christ didn't insist on his rights. He didn't regard being equal with God a thing to be grasped. Again, the main point Paul is making is that Christ didn't insist on his rights. 
The church of Philippi was threatened by their lack of humility, their, their selfishness, their selfish ambition, their conceit, their, their ambition for glory. Christ didn't insist on his rights, even though he's the most glorious. But because they're united to Christ by faith, Paul says they have this mind, this attitude of Christ. It's it's the opposite of self-exaltation. It's a self-humbling attitude like David Robinson had. There's there's concern in the church. They want to make a good impression. There are people that want to impress people. They want to be recognized as important. And there's tension as a result. I am not a fan of the Academy Awards. But the 94th Annual Academy Awards that took place a few months ago got my attention. It was one of the most exciting awards shows of all time. I think everybody will agree if you know anything about it. Maybe the only exciting one of all time. Will Smith made headlines. Things got a little sporty at the Academy Awards. He left Hollywood shocked, I read, when he went up on the stage and slapped the host, Chris Rock, in the face because Chris Rock told a joke about his wife while he was presenting an award. She has a medical condition that causes her hair to fall out. And Rock said he couldn't wait for G.I. Jane 2. G.I. Jane was a movie Demi Moore played in, and she shaved her head to be a Navy SEAL. So he was making a joke that Will Smith didn't apparently find too funny. And he walked up on the stage, and he slapped him. Next day, he resigned from the academy later issued a public apology. The Board of Governors met. They banned him from the Academy for 10 years. I've never watched this much of the Academy Awards in my life. I will say he didn't pack much of a punch because he really gave him all he had. And I feel like if I did that, Chris Rock wouldn't have finished the night. I would also say I didn't understand, you know, apologizing because F, note to self, if you make fun of my wife, I'm going to punch you. I mean, that's what I'm supposed to do, I think. Chris Rock did a great job of recovering and finishing the night, though. And, but as I watched it, like I said, I, I don't watch it very much. I just, it was very clear to me what a different world Hollywood is. It's just such a different world, even without the slap heard around the world. It's just a very different world. Consider what shocked Hollywood. Or what's this awards ceremony celebrating? I mean, there is some legitimate honoring of talent. There's some very talented people who do some very good work and legitimately are honored. But there's so much going on behind the scenes. It's, it's hard to imagine a world where Christ is honored less than in Hollywood. 
And self-humbling is not awarded. What, what shocks Hollywood? What, now think, what shocks the Apostle Paul? What shocks Paul is selfish ambition. The temptations, my point is the, the temptations the Philippians church faced are normal. They're very normal. They're very Hollywood. Except for the grace of God, there we all go. What isn't normal is the mind of Christ. That's what's not normal. The attitude that looks to the interests of others. The, the one who really was somebody put himself in a position where people completely misunderstood him. They underestimated him. They, they looked, when they saw Jesus, the man, they saw nothing but a man. Nothing distinguished in him from anyone else. No halo, no glow. He probably wasn't handsome, probably didn't have any kind of striking appearance. One theologian said, not a head would have turned as he walked by. He looked utterly ordinary. Some in the church in Philippi thought of themselves as important. They insisted on their own rights. And Paul appeals to this very different way of thinking. The mind of Christ thinks very differently. The greatest of all time. He, he didn't regard being equal with God as a thing to be grasped. He already had equality with God. He had rights to be recognized. He should have been honored and revered above everyone. He should have been served by angels. He was immune to poverty, immune to pain, immune to humiliation. If he had been motivated by selfish ambition for glory, he could have easily simply insisted on what was right, what were his rights. But he, he didn't regard these rights, something to be grasped, hung on to. He, he, he could have rejected it all. He, he could have rejected any idea of him being a servant or he, or he could have been a servant that was honored, that held on to some of his rights. He could have insisted on coming without his divine nature being concealed. He had a right to do this. But he did not think equality with God was something to be used for his advantage. He wanted it to be used for your advantage. He didn't exploit equality with God. He wasn't trying to attain it. He had it. He isn't grasping for something. Selfish ambition did not motivate him. He began with God equality, and then he humbled himself. He never ceased to be God. He kept it concealed. He, he laid aside his glory in, in the view of men. He didn't lessen it. He concealed it. Verse 7, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The one who dies is God the Son incarnate. 
God the Son was immune to death, but he assumed a form that was mortal. Instead of being the master of death, he became its victim. And it's, it's a death in its most aggravated form. It involved indescribable physical pain, but even more significantly was the curse that every Jewish person would have understood. He's hung on a tree. He's cursed. He experienced death with the sting. God gathered the sin of the world, and there and then on that Good Friday, in the flesh of his own son, he condemned it. Jesus renounced his rights so thoroughly that he died. He made himself nothing to the degree that he died that death. That cursed death. He hung on the cross. And and as he's hanging there, the last thing he looks like is God. Everything about him says, there's an atheist. There's a blasphemer. He emptied himself. It's a metaphor. He, he retained all of his divine characteristics. He added a human nature. Nothing was subtracted. Nothing was reduced. He emptied himself in the sense that he gave up his rights. He took the form of a servant. He was found in human form. Human likeness. He emptied himself by taking on the lowly status of a human servant who humbles himself in death for the sins of others. Being born in a manger was only the beginning. He condescended to homelessness, poverty, exhaustion, pain, shame. Every moment on the journey was chosen. He became a slave, Donald McLeod says, without rights, a non-person who could not turn to those crucifying him and say, do you not know who I am? Do you not know who I am? God the Son had all the rights of God, but he became a nobody. He took on our human likeness to be found in human form. He became all that we are as humans with the exception of sin. He was sinless. He was a sinless man. And his whole goal of emptying himself was to place God the Son incarnate on a cross for others. It's probably obvious now why we do baptism on, on the Sunday. We celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We're united to Christ by faith. And baptism is a picture of a believer being buried with him and raised with him to new life. The Lord saved me almost 45 years ago. I, I wasn't treading water in the ocean and I needed him to throw me a life preserver. I was on the bottom of the ocean, dead. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And God the Holy Spirit gave me new life. He gave me the gift of faith. And spiritually, I was raised from the dead. That's what these baptisms symbolize, picture. Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Just like Sam testified. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, the one who became poor, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Part two of the hymn is about the Father's exaltation of Jesus. Verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name. It's right and good for us this morning to exalt his name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has exalted Christ back to the glory he had as God the Son before the world was created. He humbled himself and God the Father has hyper exalted him. Donald McLeod again, never once does he in his own interest or in his own defense break beyond the parameters of humanity. He had no place to lay his head, but he never built himself out. He was thirsty, but he provided himself with no drink. He was assaulted by all the powers of hell, but he didn't call on his legions of angels. He bore the sin in his own body. He endured the sorrow in his human soul, redeemed the church with his human blood. The power which carried the world, stilled the tempest, and raised the dead was never used to make his own conditions of service easier. The Father exalted Jesus because of his victorious work as a man. Bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There's one sure fact of life, and that is it's going to stop. And we all need to ask ourselves this morning, how are we going to deal with this death that we all face? J.I. Packer says, Christians hold that the Jesus of the Scriptures is alive. And that those who know Him as Savior, Lord, and friend find in this knowledge a way through all life's problems, dying included. I want to ask each and every one of us to consider the claims in Philippians 2. I pray that we will all bow before the Lord Jesus and confess Him as our Lord. As Jake mentioned, if, if you are here with us this morning and you're not a Christian and you want to talk more about the gospel, we'd love to talk with you. We have a guest table in the lobby and we're here for you. All the pastors would happily talk with you and share more with you. I want to pray with you as we close today. Father, thank you for your word. We exalt Jesus Christ today unashamedly, Lord, because you are supreme. Every knee will bow, and today many of us in this room, we bow before you and confess that you are Lord. May you be exalted in our midst. We thank you, Lord, even for these songs that you've given us to sing. We thank you for this hymn, this early hymn in Philippians 2. 
that reveal who you are. What a joy it is, Lord, to celebrate this morning in song. And so we turn our attention to continuing to worship you for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message given by Bill Kittrell during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.